I am Plata on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. A new book this fall is the latest from the writer Carolyn Zwernstein on opium, pain, pleasure, and other matters of substance. It's a highly readable book about opioid use, whether they're used to uh, cope with uh, painful chronic conditions or used recreationally or depended upon because of addiction. North Americans are the world's most prolific users of opioid painkillers. Ms. Wernstein, who joins me now, looks at figures in history and their own writing and experiences with opioids, uh, like Thomas De Quincey and Frida Kahlo. She also discusses her own use of medicines to cope with a painful disease. Another fascinating and important part of the book is where she looks at uh, the overdose crisis. I'll ask her all about that and more, especially the way forward. Carolyn Zwernstein's writing has uh, appeared in The Guardian, The Toronto Star, and Vice. Her previous book is uh, Opium Eater, The New Confessions. Her Twitter handle is at Carolyn Zwern. This uh, new book is published by Goose Lane Editions. We tape this interview on the 30th of August, 2021. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Carolyn Swornstein. Ms. Swornstein, good morning. Good morning. Hi. Th- thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, as I was uh, starting your book, I, I felt um, that I'd read it before. And, and so the, I, I guess um, a part of it, a small part of it, I guess, was in, in the original um, book that you'd published, what was that, four or five years ago? Yeah, it was in 2016, and it was a very short novella-length um, book, and that constitutes the, it's out of print, it was from a very small, amazing publisher that's since gone out of print, and it's the first quarter of the book. I the see. rest of it is new, and it's, uh, yeah, that, so that first bit is, will be very familiar. It's been updated a little bit, but I tried to, because I was trying to kind of track a progression in my own thinking, mm-hmm. I didn't mess with it too much, but it, some of those statistics and things are updated, and... Um, things like that. So when you were expanding the book, as you have here, um, did you see a, a, a sort of, a, in the wider world, say, a, a change in the attitude that, 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 that people have about opioids? Yeah, I think there were some things that I, that I addressed a little bit in the first, in the first book. At the time that I wrote that, um, prescribing of opioids for pain was quite loose. Um, Patient, at least my experience was I, w- I wasn't told what I was taking mm-hmm. um, when I took it. When I started, um, I wasn't given instructions on how to keep it securely, keeping it away from my kids. I was treated as if it was any other medication. Mm. Um, but there was starting to be a bit of a shift, and some of that shift to um, to seeing them, like to recognizing that these have always been dangerous as well as effective medications, and um, and in, and that they had been recklessly prescribed for, for a period. But some of that was quite hard line and kind of ideological, and so I could sort of see that starting. Mm-hmm. But then I published in 2016, and that's the year that some new guidelines came out from the um, CDC in the U.S. on uh, um, prescribing opioids for chronic pain, and those led to a very dramatic shift Um particularly in the U.S., but in Canada as well, uh, a real shift in how, how patients were treated, how um, patients uh, were given to understand opioids, and, uh, and how opioids were understood in general. And that also coincided with overdose rates from illicit drugs, mm-hmm. uh, from illicit opioids, but also um, it's also a multi-drug issue, um, but skyrocketing 
due to, mostly due to what I had already seen in that book, which was a, a reformulation of OxyContin um, uh, a couple of years previous to that, that was intended to prevent tampering, um, but resulted in people no longer, people who were using it uh, either recreationally or for self-medication, um, and who were now dependent on it, it forced them into the illegal illicit market, with, which became dramatically more dangerous at the same time as fentanyls came in. Yeah, and then you mentioned 2016 was when the, the original book came out. Um, yeah. Since then, politically, I mean, in the United States, we, we, we've seen the, the, the rise and the fall of, of uh, well, not necessarily the fall, but of, of, of Trump. Uh, you mentioned uh, Duterte in, in the book, yeah. in the yeah. Philippines. Um, so, so as, as I look at it, um, I see a shift, I guess, um, on the ground, if you will, with, with people. Um, but w- with political leaders, I don't see that. Um, is you don't that, see a shift from the, pre- from the first book, you mean? No, a, a shift yeah. in terms of the attitudes that, that, that people have. I mean, uh, Trump was, was quite a fan of, of, of what Duterte had to say about how to deal yeah. with, with uh, addicts. Um, I'm afraid yeah, I, that in, in, in sort of uh, countries like the Philippines, even, even uh, I mean, Canada would not be immune to, to, say, populism like that. Oh, yeah. Um, it could happen throughout the world, right? Indeed. It's uh, people who use illicit drugs are kind of at the bottom of every social pyramid. And we often, the, the focus on the, like, the white prescription drug addict stereotype. Mm. Um, has kind of shifted the focus from who's actually suffering from prohibition policies, um, which are, you know, in Canada, it reflects the socioeconomic pyramid and the history of of racism that we we have from the start. I tried to chart some of that, um, the relationship of right-wing governments to, um, and right-wing ideological thinking to drugs, which is a conflicted relationship, just as as the left-wing one is, Um, but uh, also... Yeah, all, all of this. Yeah, so the, uh, you, you talk about your own your own story in in the book, and I don't know how um, deeply you want to discuss that here. But um, I'll just begin by asking you what have what has been your experience physically over the years? I mean, you, you are um, contending with chronic recurring pain. Is that right? Yeah, I have a I have a degenerative disease, um, a spine. Uh, inflammatory, a form of uh, inflammatory arthritis called ankylosing spondylitis. So it causes stiffness between the vertebrae and inflammation between the vertebrae, um, which can eventually turn into the, that irritated space can turn into bone. Mm-hmm. And in order to prevent that from happening, in the hopes of preventing that from happening, I have to keep moving um, all the time. And any time I'm at rest, uh, I feel this incredible stiffness and pain. Um, and I had been through, as you know, I've, I've been through all the alternatives for, for dealing with that um, and eventually ended up with a relatively mild opioid or an atypical opioid. Um, so the pain is not constant, but it shifts around, it's ongoing, but it's a, it's an expect, it's a definitive aspect of the, of the disease. You don't have to have x-ray evidence of the disease, although I do, mm-hmm. um, before getting a diagnosis, but you do pain is the, the kind of di- one of the, a certain kind of pain is a diagnostic feature of it. So it's not surprising that I have pain. It's not surprising that it continues. And yeah, the disease is, is slowly progressing. 
And and there's uh, as I was reading it, I was wondering, is there no cure? Say, no. There's a um, there's in uh, in rheumatology. It's kind of an exciting time because they're developing all these new treatments that are in immune suppressants and that target more closely exactly what's going on. So I'm on my second of those, a biologic drug um, that suppresses a certain part of the immune system. Um, when started early, it's very conflicting. Whether conflicting research still on whether um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories um, are are more effective, or these are more effective at if you take them very early at possibly prevent, preventing long-term damage. Kind of, I think the jury's still not out on that. But either way, the, it it helps it somewhat. Some people it clears up symptoms completely. Me, it certainly hasn't. The first one I took, I had to increasing the dose and eventually dropped it um, and have shifted to this one, which is, it certainly makes a difference, but it's um, at every rheumatology appointment, it's it's sort of, we have to decide, hmm, is it helping well enough that it's worth sticking with as opposed to leaving this one and trying, there's a limited number of these particular drugs you can take, and when you stop taking them, you can develop antibodies to them. Mm. So I still have limited options and I have to do the best I can with them. There isn't a cure. Yeah, and so, so as you uh, review regularly your, the, the course of treatment, um, I guess the, the idea of, um, say, uh, dependence or addiction, I mean, that's something that, that uh, you're thinking about as well as you're discussing with, with, with um, the people that are, are looking after you, right? Yeah. I'm no longer, I mean, I've never had a real, well, have I had conversation, not a real conversation about addiction, but... Um, Dependence is certainly an issue. Anyone who takes an opioid for the, in the long term will become physically dependent on it. Uh, and I kind of held that off for a long time by being extremely um, restrained in, in how I used the drug, um, which meant that I, as I kind of learned later, it meant that I reduced my function to to, to something that wasn't really adequate. And... Um, now I'm trying more intently to actually treat the pain in such a way that I can concentrate, that I can work, that I have enough energy um, to do daily life activities, it's, and that has improved my life dramatically, along with, I think, the biologic drug and another immune suppressant. I guess the other thing that I, I, I was thinking about, and I can't think of the word at the moment, I've, I've, I've gone blank, um, it's when the, the drug itself has no effect anymore on, on a person. Mm, tolerance. Tolerance, pardon me. Yeah. Tolerance. Um, is that something that, that you have to look at, say? Yeah. It's a, the reason I was so, so, so careful at the start with it was not really because of fears of addiction. But, you know, I've always had a low, been prescribed a low dose, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's a very sort of a relatively low risk scenario. But I went further on my own. Um, by limiting how it to the bare minimum, because I, you know, realized early on that I was taking an opioid, found out what opioids do, learned that tolerance was an issue, and if this thing improves my life so much, I really want it to continue working. So taking the minimum possible was mm-hmm. a good strategy. On the other hand, overdoing that meant sacrificing years of my life mm-hmm. um, when I could have been living better. So it's a it's a balance, and but there are other if one. You, you can become tolerant. People don't always become tolerant to their to their dose, but you it is expected that over if I'm taking it over years, the chances are that my the effective dose, the minimum dose that will actually work, is going to rise um, gradually, slowly, not not quickly, but um, at some point I would 
probably need to find a, a different combination of, of medication. You're quite candid in the book about the relationship that you have with the opioid, uh, the, the dignity that you gain, which I found quite beautiful as you, you, you write about it in the book, that you're no longer despairing, say. Um, in terms of um, a high, because, I mean, the, the, that's how people think of opioids, I guess, um, as one of the, the attendant effects. Um, what, what does that feel like other than, say, a, a lack of pain, if you will? I tried to describe it in, in the book. I mean, part of my goal was to sort of bring people through my experience because there's no way to... I can tell you how much pain I'm... I can say I'm, you know, an 8 out of 10 in pain or a 7 out of 10, and yeah, yeah. it means something different to you than it means to me anyway. Sure, and yeah. the, same, the same thing with... So I've increasingly come to, to question the, the question of what, what a high is. Um, so at the start, in the, the first part of the book, I described this... Uh, just a feeling of peace, um, euphoria, uh, relaxation and energy at the same time, like just just a wonderful feeling. But honestly, it's impossible to tell if I'm if I'm making this up. It's not. Mm. There's no way. No one. There's just no way to really know. Um, and if you are eager to demonstrate that opioids are evil and dangerous, you'll emphasize anything I say into to wow. That's you're, you're high. Um, and if you're, the, the other way, you'll, if you're a pain patient desperate to keep this medication that seems to work for you, then you'll diminish it. And many pain patients say they feel nothing different. They, all they feel is relief from pain. And definitely if you're, if you're in a lot of pain and you feel relief from pain, that's the, the important part. Um, as, I, as I wrote this, I, I, or as I, as I, since writing that other one over these next five years, when I started writing more about harm reduction and about addiction and about um, socioeconomic links, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. relationship to the opioid crisis and, and multi-drug crisis and overdose crisis, I just started to, to question that as well. I think that part of what goes on with opioids um, and other drugs, why certain drugs um, are tend to be privileged and certain drugs tend to be demonized, resulting in policies that make uh, the demonized ones incredibly more dangerous. Um, I started to see the the idea of recreational drug use and the idea of, of enjoyment as something not to be denied or eliminated. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I, what I try to do is just explain, just take you through exactly what I personally feel, experience, what I think I experience. Um, not to say that that's anyone else's experience. It really, I really can't. Um, but, and then to, to talk about the ways in which Making suffering be a moral, be seen as a as a morally superior thing, and and enjoyment or pleasure as a, as inevitably linked with danger mm -hmm. and with moral degradation is is really wrong, and it leads us into very dangerous areas that we've seen over the last hundred years or more, are are just terrible. Indeed, indeed. Um, one of the more exciting parts of the book is when you talk about your work as a journalist, as a writer. You describe the, the thrill of it and and um, the motivation for you. I mean, it's it's more than a job, isn't it? And and yeah. the, the the opioid that you've been prescribed is is something that that uh, gives you the ability to do that, right? Yes, I have found over. I mean, I used I've always been a freelancer, um, and it 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 is a viable. 
profession or it was a viable profession due to hustle, mm-hmm. being able to go anywhere, anytime, being able to sit through meetings, being able to call someone up and being persistent, all sorts of things like that that I now find very difficult. I find it hard to interview people at length. Um, I find it hard to sit down for an extended period. I find it hard to concentrate. I find it hard to write notes. I'm a very fast note taker, and now I find my fingers get stiff, and it's hard to do. Mm. Um, so now, in order to do it, I, I limit how much I do in a day. Um, I limit interviews, and I rely on painkillers, and I rely on adrenaline. Like, um, And I still it's still frustrating. There's another book, a part of the book, where where you talk about the people that you you talk to, um, in the course of your work and in the course of your writing. Um, they're not just the subject, they're not just a story, but they are a friend. Why is it important for you? Um, hmm. I think it, it's important in that. To, I guess I'm very interested in power issues, and I think that's maybe something that I think that's something that's always been part of the journalism journalism that I've done since mm-hmm. I was. Teenage, and I started publishing. I, I was interested in in stories about poverty, stories about social movements, that, that things that were led by the people at the bottom, and and so from the very start, I was aware. Of, even though I have always been a freelancer, I've never earned well from this or had job stability. I still have a there's still a power differential, and that I get to choose how I frame the, the, the story. I get to choose who I speak to. I, I come at it with certain biases. So I've sort of always been interested in, in that issue. I was never interested in addiction. And uh, kind of only came, although I wrote about poverty, I came at issues of drugs very, very rarely. And so it was after writing, a, finding that I was kind of excluded from, from doing that work anymore um, by my own limitations. And so I wrote this book that's about my experience of pain and kind of a, um, partial romanticizing of opioids in order to find um, as, as a source of seeking a source of meaning in that. After doing that, I was the, the editor of that first book kind of pushed me, and, and I sort of invited it by by framing it as a will I have this slide into addiction um, a sort of sensational approach. Um, he kind of pushed me to okay, well, find out about addiction and find out about this, and and so I started following um, people on Twitter and who were involved in this, and I started noticing that there were, and, and learning about reading the science of it, and realizing that there were, there's the sort of general mainstream media approach to addiction, which is based on stereotypes, is based on nothing, mm-hmm. based on biases, on quick formulations, phrases that sound good. Um, it's just terrible. And then there's a few people who have mostly, who I started following, who have experience of, of addiction, personal experience of addiction, and beyond that, they've really looked into the science and then found and and understand the limitations of what is known as well, mm-hmm. and come up with an with an understanding that's a, a common, that's compassionate and empowering of people that recognize that people make choices for for actual reasons. Um, and so it's, it's empowering of people, and, and sort of through that I started to learn about harm reduction and the philosophy of that, and so gradually changed my view of it. Mm. So something that changed my view um, um, is Garth Mullins and his work with, with uh, mm-hmm. and the folks that produce Crackdown, which you write about it's in the amazing. book. He is, isn't he? Um, I love what you say about what they do there at Crackdown, that, that they're advancing human rights, they're protecting precious lives. Um, that can't be overstated in terms of, of um, 
just the connection that that uh, podcast has had with people. I mean, you, you talk about a, a person in the book who uh, was trying to deal with grief over losing someone. And, um, you know, the, the, I don't see how that could have happened anywhere else other than from, from her listening to, to the work that, that Garth and, and others do. I don't know. Petra Schultz is amazing as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. With, with Mum Stop the Harm, a, a parent of, of someone who died of a heroin overdose. Um, that group, uh, tomorrow, I think, is going to be in Vancouver joining the another group that I mentioned, uh, sort of an ad hoc group called the Drug Users Liberation Front, uh, to hand out free tested methamphetamine, cocaine, and heroin to people who have pre-registered who are dependent on, on the substances. And mm-hmm. um, So can you to imagine that someone, it's, I wish I'd been able to write about that in, in the book, because it's, it's someone who's, it's, it's a, that podcast uh, and others who share that Garth's uh, outlook, Garth's mm-hmm. way of, of seeing this, have made a bridge between parents of people um, who've used drugs or um and pain patients as well, which are two groups that are often at odds, yeah, still yeah. often at odds with with um, active drug users. But it's, I believe in, in empowerment from the people who are most intensely experiencing something. And so those other, the groups with more privilege, even, no matter how much they've suffered, need to listen to the, the people who are, yeah. who are most affected by discriminatory policies, racist policies, policies prohibition policies, and um, Petra, through that, has done that beautifully, and her and her group has has done that beautifully in the sense that they really they've learned to really do have an analysis that isn't sort of the narcotics anonymous formulations, and instead to really about enabling and about the importance of cutting off loved ones who are struggling yeah. with drugs. Instead, actually looking deeper to what is going to keep these people alive, what is going to keep them connected. What is going to give people a chance to be authors of their own lives? Um, so yeah, it's it's a very beautiful connection, and I've just been privileged to kind of watch that. Yeah. So so you mentioned a moment ago about um, the rise in deaths due to um, uh, to, to uh, drugs and the, and the sort. Um, and so one reads the book and can't help but feel um, down about all this. And, but, but, but you don't, I mean, you, you certainly see a path forward and, 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 and part of that is, is safe supply and legalization. Um, the objection to either or both, can that be overcome? I hope I, it's kind of in some ways quite grim right now. Um, very grim. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of faith in, in movements led by the people experiencing it. Yeah. And I also have a lot of faith in, in reality. So prohibition isn't just um, bad. It also doesn't work. And when I, when I propose something that other people have proposed as well, um, things like free, safe, tested supply of, of heroin, when I propose relationships with um, producer nations like Mexico um, to, to produce drugs that people need, um, that are that are not going to do, to kill them, um, and that allow people to move down to less potent drugs if they want. Um, it gives it gives me hope because although it's easy to say all sorts of things about how that's an evil, horrible idea, 
if you can have any conversation where you actually look at the, the realities of what works and what doesn't, you look at reliable, good studies that have been done, and you can actually explain them with proper, like a proper explanation as opposed to Trump the sort of slogan. Yeah. Um, it, the fact is this is what works. It's well-tested, this, this, this approach, um, and well-demonstrated in, in many, many contexts that the prohibition doesn't work and that certain carefully done policies of legalization and safe supply would work. Yeah, There's yeah. every reason to believe they would. And right now, tens of thousands of people are dying from this and having their lives ruined. So I, I, it's the same as I feel about climate change. Like We don't have any choice but to, <laughs> to yeah. eventually change. But it is a huge loss that's happening in the meantime. Yeah, I, 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 not just in reading your book, but but uh, obviously listening to Garth and 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 um, I've had him on the show a couple of times. Um, I, I've I've come around in the sense that I mean you know I'm, I'm speaking to you from Vancouver, yeah, and um, you know the the, the place that, that uh, Crackdown talks about is you know usually yeah. about the downtown east side and yeah. Um, you know, I, I if I wanted to try something recreationally, whatever that might be. Yeah. Um, I, I can go out and pr- procure it, right. uh, and um, probably not die from it. Uh, where, mm-hmm. Whereas pe- people who who aren't in my position, who who live in that neighborhood, say, uh, can yeah. you know can't. And 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 why is my life more uh, valuable than theirs? Yeah, and like the fact that things are some things are accessible. By various means um, to people with with more resources, with from a different position in with life, privilege, yeah, leads, yeah, leads us to think that they're that those are the safer versions. But the the I mean, like as a as a pharmaceutical drug, fentanyl is given to toddlers for surgery. Mm-hmm. It's a it's not the context that that determines how very dangerous a, a medication is. Addiction is almost a side issue, and I, it's, it's an issue that keeps taking over, but it's, it's actually not the fundamental issue that should guide policy. Yeah. Um, Carlin, what has uh, writing this book um, and, and thinking about all of this, what has that done for your own life, say? Mm-hmm. It helped me to, I guess, to commit to writing. I'm, like People come to, to writing from you know, some people in their 20s or in their 30s or whatever. Um, there's many different ways of coming to it. I decided that I was going to be a writer in kind of a professional way when I was six. And it's some, so it's, it's something that I care about more than almost anything else. And I didn't really have a route to that or know how to do it. So this being able to write something that, that does did draw from my life but that has gone beyond that um, to look at things that I care about, literature, meaning of life, um, and then some of the social issues, um, it's kind of given me a personal sense of, of commitment, um, not, not to writing about the same kind of thing again, but to, to it allowed me to put into words, I guess, the, the passion that I feel for that um, and the importance of it. Um, so that's helped. that's been good for me. It's reoriented me to writing books, mm-hmm. which I think is, is um, probably never going to uh, constitute a living, but <laughs> it is uh, not the way the industry is going right now. Right. But it is uh, it's something that I want to continue doing. It's, it gives you more space, less constraints of sort of um, formulaic writing that editors sometimes expect in a in 
journalism, so it, it just gives you more space. You couldn't, I couldn't have put all the amount of poetry and digressions and things that I that I have in this book into an article. And so it's a wonderful freedom. It's just great as a writer, and everyone should do this. Uh, we didn't talk about um, the the uh, uh, parts in the book where you talk about Frida Kahlo or Thomas De Quincey. Be, um, just fascinating um, sections of the book about um, w- whether one. Um, needs to suffer in terms of their work, uh, which you touched on a moment ago. So I urge people to pick up the book uh, for that as well as everything else. It's, it's, it's a, such a, um, a beautifully written book as well as important. Um, um, I, I can't thank you enough for the time that you, you've spent with me now. Um, congratulations and, and good luck with the book. Thank you so very much. The book is called On Opium. Pain, Pleasure, and Other Matters of Stub- Substance. It's published by Goose Lane Editions. Carolyn Zwarenstein joined me on the line from Toronto. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Planta.